Let me invite you to take your Bibles, please, and go to Colossians chapter 4. Colossians chapter 4 this morning. While you're turning there, let me express my thanks for you being here. Uh, we started having a fall, well, actually not a fall, it was in the spring back when we started in the early 90s. It was called the Mid-America Conference on Preaching to focus on uh, sort of elevating the, the, the focus of expositional preaching. And so it was centered on that for many years. And then we, uh, as the nature of, of it is, you do the same conference for 20, 25 years, you start to broaden it out to other topics. And so then we decided to change the name to express that. So E3 is engage, equip, and encourage. Uh, engage us in biblical and theological and pastoral uh, issues. And, and uh, we don't apologize for it. This is a conference that really does try to deliver a lot of goods, uh, heavy, sometimes uh, deep, uh, deep, heavy stuff, because we need that. We need to engage those things from the scriptures. And so we try to focus in that way. We always want to try and equip the, the hands of God's servants. I mentioned to our congregation a lot that if we help leaders in churches and we're helping churches and churches are the center of what God's doing, and so it's a, it's a great privilege to be able to be a part of that and then uh, encourage. Uh, we, we hope that time will be refreshing for you. If we can serve you in any way or uh, do, do anything to help you while you're here, we want to do that. We want to enjoy the fellowship, enjoy the teaching, enjoy the worship of God. It's a, a great privilege to have you here, and we're extremely thankful for that. As I was thinking about my general session, I, I, I decided not to go into one of the specific kinds of topics that we'll be addressing, uh, but actually sort of, if I could sort of step back in front of that uh, about, I think, a, a challenge we're going to face as believers, as pastors, as congregations, as the world uh, keeps moving, the world around us particularly, keeps moving in ways that are hostile to biblical truth, that we need to recognize. Uh, certainly, I, I hope over the course of uh, the conference, we'll see places from Scripture where we need to take a stand and, and be unflinching in that stand. That's, that's our hope. Uh, but we also need to recognize that it's going to affect the way in which we relate to the people around us and the culture around us. And in some ways, uh, we're having pressed upon us something the early church probably would have understood a little better since they lived in a pagan world. They didn't have the, the heritage of Christendom, right? When you look at the things that they faced and, and the issues that confronted them, they, they are... Uh, our world is increasingly looking more like theirs. Because once you abandon God at the center of your worldview, even if, you're, if you don't have a true relationship with God, you still have sort of a theistic center that, that you've inherited from Christendom. That, that's a different way of looking at the world than when you take God out and put humans at the center and adopt a humanistic frame of reference and paradigm. And we're seeing, we're seeing that start to unravel around us. And, and we need to be concerned about our witness and how we respond to that. And I've, I've taught for 
for years, basically drawn from John 17, sort of evangelism 101 has three components. There's the, the content of the message, right? Contact with the mission field. Jesus said, speak the word, and I didn't take you out of the world, but put you into the world. So he expected us to be in contact with people who don't know him, but also the credibility of the messenger. And, and that's true when we look at the scriptures, both congregationally, right? John 13, the way we love one another will be a mark of our discipleship. So the unity of God's people in the church. And I think if you go over to Ephesians, the issues about holiness and purity. So the purity and unity of the congregation affect the credibility of its witness. But also on a personal level, that, that we, the way we live and the way we speak affects our credibility as witnesses of Christ. And that's where I really want us to zero in this morning is on that issue of our, our walk and our words found in Colossians chapter 4, verses 5 and 6. Look at God's word, Colossians 4, 5 and 6. Conduct yourselves with wisdom toward outsiders, making the most of the opportunity. Let your speech always be with grace as though seasoned with salt so that you will know how you should respond to each person. The reason I've tied this to witness or our relationship to those outside the church is because of the language of the text. In verse 5, it says, toward outsiders. And then verse 6 talks about how you should respond to each person. And I think in the context, that's primarily a, a response to those who are outside of the church as well. These two verses are coupled together on it. So, so Paul wants us to think carefully about how we respond to the lost around us. And, and he zeroes in on that in such a way that we are uh, in some way, taking into consideration the outside, right? We walk in wisdom toward the outsiders, making the most of the opportunity. And then our speech is supposed to be a certain way so that we'll know how to respond to each person. So, so uh, I'm going to play off the words in verse 5, make the most of the opportunity, redeeming the time, redeeming the opportunity, that if we're going to be faithful in an ever-increasingly dark world, then we have to have conduct and communications that have some redemptive value to them. We're making the most of the opportunity. So look at verse 5, our, our conduct. The character of our conduct is described as with wisdom. And the word conduct, Nasby has conduct, it's, it's literally walk, and, and I, I'm sure you know that. That's, the, that's the, the, the manner of life, the pattern of life. The dominant message of the New Testament is that those who know Christ should have radically distinctive lives from those who don't know him. And this word walk is a part of how that's communicated. Colossians 2.6 says, Therefore, as you have received Christ Jesus the Lord, so walk in him. Ephesians 4.1, I implore you, to walk in a manner worthy of the calling with which you have been called. Ephesians 4.17, this I say and affirm together with the Lord, that you walk no longer just as the Gentiles also walk. And he already told them in chapter 2 what that was like, because he said in 2, 1 and 2, you were dead in trespasses and sins in which you formerly walked. 
right? The conduct of your life was in trespasses and sins. Now that you are in Christ, you should no longer walk that way. Your conduct should be different and distinctive. And Romans 6, 4 says that we too might walk in newness of life. And so our conduct, the pattern of our lives, is to be different from those who don't know Christ. But even more narrowly, what Paul says here is that we should walk with wisdom or conduct ourselves with wisdom. And you know, the book of Colossians, that's a big concept for Paul in this book. He mentions wisdom a number of times because of the error of the false teachers trying to lead them away from the wisdom that's found in Christ because he is the one in whom are hidden all treasures of wisdom and knowledge. And so he doesn't want them to be beguiled by false wisdom, but he wants them actually to be conducting themselves with true wisdom, wisdom that is centered in Christ. It's actually supposed to control our teaching, 128, and our worship, 316, wisdom. We're to teach wisely, and we're supposed to sing with wisdom. I think probably the closest parallel is chapter 1, though. Look at verses 9 and 10 of chapter 1. Because Paul has tied wisdom to their walk in these verses. He's praying, he's given a prayer report, and here's what he says in 1.9. For this reason also, since the day we heard of it, we have not ceased to pray for you and to ask that you may be filled with the knowledge of his will in all spiritual wisdom and understanding so that you will walk in a manner worthy of the Lord. So the, the result or purpose of having this knowledge of his will in spiritual wisdom is that you'd walk in a manner worthy of Christ, which, which means at least that we shouldn't think of this conduct yourselves with wisdom as mainly an abstract theoretical kind of thing, right? We have a tendency to do that. Wisdom is sort of, you know, the guy on top of the mountain or, or the person who has all of the answers in theory and conversation, but, but in reality, Paul is probably tapping more into the wisdom of Proverbs, which is the taking of knowledge and translating it into appropriate living. Because wisdom is skillful living according to God's design and his revelation. Right? So you live wisely you are actually living in light of the God who made everything and how he designed it and how he has spoken to us about how we should live. And so it's something that really is sort of at the, at the street level of our lives that we should be wanting to conduct ourselves with wisdom. Now go back, if you would, chapter 4, verse 5, because here's the context of this conduct that he's talking about, right? It's I mean, you could just stop right there and say, like, just generally Paul tells you to be wise. But he's actually not just generally talking about wise conduct. He's specifically talking about wise conduct toward outsiders. Conduct yourself with wisdom toward outsiders. All right? So he's not just giving us a general, hey, you know, be wise. He's specifically saying, in your, in your response to and relations toward those outside, make sure you conduct yourself 
with wisdom. And that's, that's sort of what drew me to this text for this conference. Uh, and and it's, I think it's important that we recognize the language that Paul uses here really doesn't sit well with the old church growth, seeker-friendly kind of a mindset that wanted to try and erase the boundary between the church and those outside the church. Right? Paul, Paul isn't hesitant to say, there are people who are not a part of the body. They're outsiders. Right? And, 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 and we sometimes don't recognize how, how much has filtered into the thinking and philosophy of, of evangelicalism that we really need to sort of do everything we can to minimize the distance because the operating system is if we can't win them to us, we can't win them to Jesus. So since we've got to win them to us before we can win them to Jesus, we need to sort of close the gap that would cause them to feel like they don't belong, a.k.a. like they're an outsider. Right? But, but Paul uses that language um, a number of times. He uses it here. 1 Corinthians 5, 12 through 13, on the basis about church discipline. For what have I to do with judging outsiders? Do you not judge those who are within the church? Those who are outside, God judges. Remove the wicked man from among yourselves. You get the logic of what he's saying? All right, church discipline is for those who are inside the church. God will judge those outside the church. The problem is there's one who seems like an outsider who's on the inside. You need to remove that person. And so you put them out, you hand them over to Satan, is saying, your so-called stand as a Christian is not credible. That presupposes there's a fence line there that's recognizable between those who are a part of the church and those who are not. You, you eliminate that and you make, you make Paul's words nonsense, right? It doesn't, it doesn't make sense at all. He says the same thing, to, similar thing to the Thessalonians, 1 Thessalonians 4.12, so that you will behave properly toward outsiders and not be in any need. And here's a, I mean, perhaps like not something we'd immediately think of when Paul's talking about the qualifications of overseers. He says he must have a good reputation with those outside the church. Right? So he's, he's acknowledging that there are people who are not a part of the church. They're outside of it. And, and someone who's serving Christ can't just have a good reputation inside the church. They also need to have a good reputation outside the church, which actually sort of runs alongside of this text, right? Walk in wisdom toward outsiders. I mean, if we adopt a mindset that says, we're supposed to love one another, but we can be jerks to those outside. Then, then we're, we're actually going against what this command is and certainly what Paul thinks should be the model for a Christian since he's established as a standard for the leaders of the church. Right? So, so it's, not, it's, not, um, it's not consistent with the theology of the church in scriptures to remove the barrier between outside and inside, even if it's for 
good purposes. We want to reach them. Right? And, and, I, and I've, I mean, uh, in some ways it's good, like the church growth movement, you know, is sort of peaked and you really don't you know, have as much of a big push about it. But, but honestly, some of those concepts have been around. I remember, I mean, this was way, way back. I was preaching at a conference. I did a workshop and, and uh, or I was sitting in a workshop and a guy, and this was like a, a fundamentalist uh, conference. It wasn't any kind of, uh, any kind of middle of the road. I mean, it was, it was the right side of the road. And the, the guy was saying that they basically would let people, you know, people who start attending their church, they'd let them serve and they'd let them sing in the choir. And, and actually, I was scheduled to preach in the conference that night, and I was actually going after that very thing, right? So, so I went to him afterward, and I said, listen, I just, I just want you to know, my sermon was written before I heard your workshop. So I'm going to disagree, and I'm going to disagree quite strongly and quite publicly but I had no idea you were going to say that, All right? So I'm not taking a shot at you. I was planning to take that shot, All right? You just, you just happened to move in the line of fire, all right? So, so the reality of it, but, but it's, that was, you know, that was 20-plus years ago where it was still basically the idea, hey, this outsiders come to the church. We want to f- make them feel welcome, so let's... Let's treat them like they're a part of the body. Okay, that's, that's, that's contrary to what Scripture's saying. And I would say that has morphed into, among the softer elements of, of evangelicalism, is it morphed into this kind of inclusive language that's now going, if you other certain identities you're actually not going to be able to reach them. Right? If you, if you stand and say, this, and I'm, I, I'm just using the broad identity, but you can fill in whatever you want. Pick your letter from the alphabet. Right? If you other them, you treat them in a non-inclusive way, then you're not going to be able to reach them. Right, that's just that's just the refry of the church growth stuff. It, it all it did was go from baby boomer church growth strategies to generations that follow church growth strategies. Right, we gotta we've got to be inclusive and welcoming and receptive. Therefore, we can't speak or do anything that would make them feel like they don't belong and they're outsiders. And I would suggest to you that's that's not a New Testament way of thinking. Right? That's not actually the way we're supposed to conduct ourselves, that we obliterate the outsider. He doesn't say, so walk in wisdom toward outsiders by erasing outsiderness. Right? But that's that's at times the route we're going, and it's contrary to it. And, and so we should recognize. That, that if someone starts to talk about inclusion or uh, marginalization or anything that's intended to go, hey, we need to stop making this distinction the key, 
then, then I think they're going the wrong direction. And I hadn't planned to say this, but I'm just going to like really tiny little rabbit about right there and come right back, okay? What they've, they've made, it's, it's consistent with uh, we have to win them to us before we can win them to Christ. One version of that is that we actually, we actually getting them to come to church is the primary means of evangelism. Right? So if we can't get them to church, we can't reach them for Christ. And it's basically looking at the gathering of God's people as for the purpose of reaching the lost, which is not very well supported in the scriptures. Right? The assembly gathers for the assembly to be mutually edified, to exalt God, right? And it's not wrong for unbelievers to be there, 1 Corinthians 14, but that's different between saying they might be present and tailoring what we're doing for them. Right? Those are different conceptions. So if we think the purpose of the gathering of God's people is actually somehow to reach the lost, and, and then we flatten it out, it's not the preaching of the cross that does that. It's actually sort of them feeling socially welcome that will reach them. We're actually following a, a, an historic pattern that I think the trajectory of which leads away from the truth and ultimately leads away from effectiveness. And depending on what your cultural context is, it's sometimes, I mean, I say, uh, I say clearly in, in, in like our area that's predominantly Catholic, when you make the center of your evangelism inviting them to church, you're actually working against productive evangelism because they think salvation is church. And you're trying to get me to leave the Catholic Church and become a Baptist because that's the way they're thinking. And, and what you really need to be is zeroing in on the gospel because the gospel isn't come to church. It's come to Christ. And if they come to Christ, they'll follow in that way. So I think we have to recognize this outsider-insider distinction is important for us to not abandon and, and, and to maintain in a way that can. Look back in the text now because he, he's trying to get us to see that the way we, the way we conduct ourselves toward unbelievers is important because of the opportunity connected to it to be a witness for Christ. Right? And in living, right? Living in a world like Paul lived in, and living in a world like we live in means we have to walk wisely as we do that, right? And, and it seems to me that, that that is important and it's going to require much discernment and it's going to require real discipline, right? But those come from when we, when we have our eye on the right target, right? We're, we're focused on what God wants us to do. And, and I think the last part of the verse is intended to put a sense of urgency to it. I think, I think you could look at it as be opportunistic in that regard. Our conduct is a significant part of our witness for Christ, not because it will save anybody, but it actually will either 
uh, damage or enhance the, 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 the words we speak, right? No one looks at a life and gets saved that has never heard the gospel because faith comes by hearing and hearing by the word. So it's not, it's not rooted. The message is not our life. The, that's not the focal point of it, but our life certainly has an effect on our, our ability to communicate. And as we navigate a world that is becoming increasingly complex, we have to, we have to start to think like they had to think, right? I mean, just as an example, 1 Corinthians 8 through 10, Paul's dealing with food offered to idols, and he doesn't give them a one-size-fits-all solution, right? He says, if, if this food is being offered in the temple to an idol, you cannot participate in it. You can't sit down at the table of demons in the table of the Lord. So answer, no, Right? The same food sold in the meat market, he says, don't ask any questions for conscience sake, because the earth is the Lord's. Right? You, if the obligation's not on you to go, hey, can you give me a back, background check on this sirloin? Right? Where has it been? What's it been connected to? He says, don't ask questions. The earth is the Lord's. He says, if you show up at a dinner at an unbeliever's house, eat what's put in front of you. But if he says this is offered to an idol, then don't. Now, here's the thing I need, we've got to see. Paul is not teaching relativism there. Right? He's taking an absolute standard Believers cannot be involved in idolatry. And then applying that standard to different situations to see whether that standard is violated or not. It is always violated when you go to eat in the temple offered to, uh, meat being offered to him. Always, so no, you can't do that. Are you, are you stronger than God? I mean, he's pretty serious about it. When you go into the marketplace, it is not violated. So buy. When you sit down to dinner with an unbeliever, if nobody's made an issue of the idolatry, just eat. If they make it an issue, push away. Right? The applications are relative in this sense. They relate to the issue at hand. The principle is absolute. It's timeless. It doesn't change. Where that principle shows up in life is where the change is, and that's what requires wisdom. At, 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 At similar kinds of things, we have to stop and say, okay, does this action involve me in anything that contradicts my obligations to be obedient to God's will? And if it clearly does, then you clearly can't do it, right? There might be some scenarios in which uh, you, well, let me go out here, right? It might be flexible, right? It may jump from, from okay to not okay based on people around you, 
right? Because 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 this first situation where he's sitting down to eat, right? The circumstance, the only change in the circumstance was the conscience of the unbeliever. And so now he had an obligation toward that outsider to make certain he didn't communicate a false message. Right? That's, that's what's going on. And that requires wisdom. And, and here's the thing that, um, I mean, I don't know, it's just my perspective on it, right? Because we have had a sort of comfortable relationship with the culture around us for a long, long time, we have tended to absolutize principle or uh, applications because the, the applications tend to be fairly uniform. And now we're in a scenario where the culture is pulling apart and the norms that govern our culture are, are being stressed out and we're being stressed out with them and we're struggling on, okay, so how do, how do I handle this? How do I navigate this? And, and, and so... So Paul would be saying, and I'm just taking 1 Corinthians 10 as an illustration, right? You would be going at dinner. Here's the, you know, the best cut of meat I've seen in ages. And I'm just re- salivating, ready to go. And all of a sudden this guy goes, ding, 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 ding. Oh, by the way, this is offered too. And at that moment... Conducting myself with wisdom toward the outsider, making the most of the opportunity, means I have to say, for the sake of the gospel, I will back away. Right? But here's the thing, it would be a part of like the preceding one in our day, and I, and I tie it into this, this presupposes some conduct with lost people, right? Outsiders. So here's the tension we, we, we've got to wrestle with. Some have taken this outsider-insider so firm that they basically have gone into holy huddles, right? And they'd be going, well, this unbeliever asked me to dinner. I'm not sure I could do that. I mean, I might get, might get a problem. I have issues. So, so they're not actually going, hey, the wise thing here would actually to be opportunistic about this and say, yes. I need to be in that conduct, that contact with them so that I can. And, and so here's the thing. I mean, obviously there's a, a lot of different ways we could work out applications. I just want to challenge us about it, right? So, so let's go back to the identity issue. And some person from some alphabet letter, right? Has some kind of, uh, some kind of synapse with your congregation or with your life. What this text would say is you can't, in trying to reach them for Christ, obliterate the distinction between those who know Christ and those who don't. That would not be conducting yourself wisely toward outsiders. You'd be saying effectively there are no outsiders. But it also would mean that you are thinking, okay, so in what ways can I show a kind of redemptive, opportunity-seeking response to this person that, that moves me toward them rather than trying to swallow them up into us? 
right? I'm supposed to take the gospel to them. I'm supposed to move toward them. And if I could go back to this one, I do that. I can do that, but I cannot do that at the cost of the gospel. Right? So if they want me to accept an identity which the scriptures would warn is headed toward eternal condemnation, and they want me to put my arm around them and call them brother or sister in Christ, then I can't go there. Right? At that point, I would be putting them ahead of God and the gospel. Right? So, so what, what I'm, I'm, I guess what I'm trying to urge us is that we need to realize that God is in control of our circumstances providentially, and God often uses things that are not comfortable to advance the gospel, right? Uh, I think the people on Malta were thankful for Paul's imprisonment and shipwreck. Not so sure Paul thought it was all that great of an idea. But the gospel got to Malta, because God in his providence put Paul in jail and then into a storm, right? God's in control of the harvest and he is working through the circumstances of it to establish opportunities for his people to bear witness to Christ. The decline of our culture is such an opportunity and we need to see it that way. Right? But we need to see it wisely. That we don't, we don't actually disobey God in trying to seize the opportunity. We actually are seeking to honor God in the way we are taking advantage of the opportunity that comes to us. And that means we have to have genuine insight as to the nature of the issues, which, Lord willing, the con conference is going to provide a lot of that. Right? How should we think biblically about these issues? We need to have genuine insight so we can see the true nature of the situation. We need, we need some degree of hindsight because some of these kinds of issues have come at us before and we need to think carefully about that. I mean, have we seen this before? Right? Even just a, uh, I mean, not to get into it, right? But the whole, the whole rise of the diagnosis of gender dysphoria is not unlike the rise of previously socially sort of buzzword issues. Any of you remember how dominant repressed memories were a couple decades ago? Like it was the hot diagnosis. And all of a sudden, all over the place, people started having it, and people seeing the people have it. And if you look at the charts, genders to dysphoria has gone from like this level of diagnosis to this level. And that's a problem coming both from the diagnosers, but also the social contagion of people self-diagnosing. Right? We've seen this before. And, and that means that if we're going to be faithful to the word, we're not going to do the same kind of mistakes that a lot of people did about the, like the repressed memory. It becomes the hot buzz issue. And so everyone goes, you know, let's show where the Bible addresses repressed memories. 
And all kinds of stuff gets shoehorned into the Bible, and, and it really becomes psychological stuff that doesn't have biblical warrant. Same, same thing's happening now with the care of people who have been, uh, who've been infected with the identity-itis. And we need to walk wisely about it. We've seen things like this before. We also need to ask ourselves, where is this going, right? If, if we're going to have wisdom, where is this going? Because the prudent foresees the evil and passes by. The naive go on and are punished. Where does this stuff lead? Where will it lead the church? Where will it lead Christians? And, and we, need to, we need to be thinking about that. And so taking time like we're doing, I think, is good. And then walking back and going, all right, as leaders in the assembly of God, how do we conduct ourselves wisely about this for our church toward outsiders, making the most of the opportunity? All right. Look at you at verse 6, because there's a second component, and that is our communication, our words. Verse 6 says, let your speech always be with grace as though seasoned with salt so that you will know how you should respond to each person. Paul asked them to pray for his speech back in verses 3 through 4, and now he is talking to them about theirs. And I think that connection is clear uh, in this sense. The word word in 3 and his word for speech here is logos. And so I don't think it's I don't think it's just the proclamation of the gospel, but I think it certainly warrants that inclusion because of the context that's here. The first thing I want us to see is the consistency that he's aiming for. Let your speech always be with grace. All right, He is talking about the habit pattern of believers. There is a continual obligation for the believer to monitor their speech in this way. There's no room for compartmentalization that, that makes certain kinds of speech okay in this context. And then, well, when we're in a witnessing context, this is the way we should be, right? Our speech should always be this way. And how we speak at times when we aren't communicating the gospel has a significant effect on how we speak when, how we're heard when we are communicating the gospel, right? Consistency, the kind of consistency that he's after here is the antidote to hypocrisy, right? I mean, I think we just reckon, I read a, a, you know, pastor stands in the pulpit and preaches and he speaks in certain ways and, and, and honors biblical truth and they step out of the pulpit and their speech is very different than that. At some, at some point, people are going to go, so which one's the real guy? Right? And, and really, they're probably not actually asking that. They're going to go, well, the guy who puts on the face in the pulpit isn't the real guy because most of your life's lived outside of it. Right? That's why sometimes I see the way pastors conduct themselves on social media, and I think, man, what must the members of their churches be thinking? Because they will talk to people they don't know online in ways they probably would not talk to them under their immediate care or in their presence. And if they did, they probably wouldn't be a pastor very long. Right? That's, that's the kind of inconsistency that I think he would be going against. We need to recognize 
that, that God's call for us is a character call here about our speech, because our speech reveals a lot about our heart, Jesus says, and it indicates a lot about our maturity, James 3 would say. So, so it's really important for us as leaders to make certain that we're, uh, we're striving by God's grace to be consistent in this area. And I think a part of that is, is that we're willing to own our inconsistencies, right? We'll, we'll actually make right the things we have made wrong in it. And putting somebody in his or her place at the cost of our credibility is not worth it. And, and certainly we need to think about that side of it. So what's the character then of our speech? It should be uh, with grace as though seasoned with salt. And, and there's uh, three possible means for with grace here. It could be gracious, could be thankful. Actually, in chapter 3, right, he, he says the same language with grace, and he means with gratitude. Right? Or it could be full of God's grace, which I certainly wouldn't, I wouldn't want to say we don't want that to be the case. Paul's probably presuming that. I think it's best to take it like most do, at least many do, as graciousness, that he's not in the context here saying, let your speech be with gratitude. It's more that it would have a kind of flavor to it, a graciousness that is the manner of our speaking, it would be somewhat parallel to what Paul says in 2, Corinthians, uh, 2 Timothy 2 about uh, the servant of the Lord, right? That his demeanor and actions are supposed to have a certain kind of character to them. I think that's what he's saying about our speech. Now, it is notoriously difficult to apply and always involves some element of subjectivity, doesn't it? I mean, one person's graciousness is another person's compromise is a third person's harshness, right? Let's just acknowledge that, right? I think I'm being gracious, and the guy usually to the right of me thinks I'm compromising, and the guy to the left of me thinks I'm being harsh. Or... Somebody else is trying to be gracious, and since I'm always to the right of them, I think they're being a compromiser, and, 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 and someone else thinks they're being harsh, right? It's just, it's, it's tough to, uh, it's tough to say, um, you're gonna, I mean, you're certainly not gonna keep everybody happy. But the difficulty shouldn't stop us from pursuing obedience. I mean, that it's hard, doesn't mean we don't do it. It means we pursue it. We want to do what God wants us to do. And there is no doubt that some attempts at graciousness, in fact, uh, betray the truth. And, I, and I, I've tried to skirt into this carefully, but and, and I'm just going to say it to challenge you, right? I think... A graciousness that accepts false paradigms of unbelief are, are not actually gracious, right? And, and you, you'll have to wrestle with it yourself. And I certainly, again, I don't know what anyone else is going to say, so I'm, not, I'm just telling you what I'm saying, right? But I don't, I, I did a couple times, I said, pick your letter of the alphabet. Because I, I very hard 
very, work very hard never to describe somebody as LBTGQ+. Because you're effectively accepting the premise of their unbelief at that point. Right? I mean, what's the B stand for? Bisexual. So you're basically saying, yeah, you have an identity that, that you know, can commit fornication with either gender. Right? Tra T? I don't actually even believe exists in terms of what they're talking about. Right? So, so here's, I would say, for me, graciousness doesn't mean I accept the premises of your unbelief and therefore will grant them in my communication with you. Now, it's another thing for me to go pick the most profane and vulgar and hurtful ways to describe all of those. Right? That's, that's, that's not what I'm talking about. I'm just saying we, we need to realize that at times the call to graciousness is actually making a mistake. And also, sometimes people attacking that mistake confuse rudeness for boldness. Right? They, they actually uh, pride themselves on being as offensive as they possibly can. And that's not the goal either. Right? The goal isn't, isn't to be that. What we have to do then is make up our own decisions on where the line is, but we have to honor the principle. If I could just maybe say a couple things about this. Actually, three. How's that? Gracious, gracious does not mean truthless, right? I mean, he talks about a door for the word in verse 3, so I don't think Paul's going to say, so be gracious and sort of, you know, hide the truth. And we don't trim it down. We don't, uh, I mean, trimmed down and toned down truth is a problem. And if I could, uh, if I if I could just char challenge us, right? And maybe I'm getting to be an old man. Maybe the younger of us, particularly, right? I think it started with my generation. We're prone to highlight all the exceptions to our dogmatic statements, and that's become an epidemic below my generation. Right, We can give eight qualifications to every one assertion. And we, we can have a tendency now to be so concerned to communicate what we're not saying that what we are saying sounds very muted, very muffled. Because we've been browbeat by the tone police. Right, what well, used to be like an acceptable kind of statement, hey, you need to read the room and understand where, where you're at becomes a club. Hey, read the room, buddy. As a way to just shut people down because your tone is off or you're not being sensitive and you've got to qualify everything. That, that's not what graciousness here is. It isn't go, hey, I'd like to talk to you about a problem, but before we do that, let me give you a half-hour excursus on what the problem isn't. 
right? Or I don't, you know, I don't believe this, and I don't believe that, and I don't believe that, and I don't believe this, and I don't believe that. So here's what I do believe. Right? And, and what we're tending to do is allow ourselves to be shaped by that, and that's, I think, a dangerous thing. And I think we need to, we need to stand firmly on the fact that graciousness is based on God's standard, not man's standard. Are you, it's right across the page for me. I don't know what size Bible you have. It might be like a few screens over for you. All right, look at 1 Thessalonians chapter 2 and verse 4. Because this is really, uh, the part of my point would be, graciousness is based on God's standards, not man's. Look what Paul says here. But just as we have been approved by God to be entrusted with the gospel, so we speak not as pleasing men, but God who examines the heart. Okay, so so here's what Paul's saying. Listen, when I speak forth the word of God, the, the one whose pleasure I'm seeking is God, because God is the one to whom I'm accountable on it. I'm not speaking to please people. Okay, and that's, that's important to recognize because if we hand the reins over to, to humans, then we're gonna, it's actually gonna turn away from being reins to be puppet strings. We're gonna have to, you know, go with the movement and say, wow, well, you can't say that. That dehumanizes somebody. You can't say that. They're an image bearer in terms of our context. Right? The whole idea of saying image bearer is very regularly intended to say, so back off, buddy. You can't talk like that. They're made in the image of God. And, and, and you ultimately have a scenario which, which is shifting the standard away from the one that we've been given, which is the word of God and an assessment before him of our words, which is also our heart, since out of the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaks. Right? And I'd say as well that gracious does not mean non-controversial or non-confrontational. And, and I, think, I think, I'm not... I'm not the only person to f- observe this, right? But some, if not many, are calling speech, right? They're, they're calling sin, uh, speech sinful, which indicts the prophets, the apostles, and even the Lord Jesus, right? I mean, at one point, the apostles were a little unnerved by Jesus, they say to him, Lord, the, the, the religious leaders were offended that you said that about them. Do you remember how Jesus responded? He didn't go, hey, I shouldn't have said that. I'm going to go back and make it right. Right? He rooted it in their, their lost condition that they took offense at him. The Pharisees tried to chase Jesus away one time because Herod was going to kill him. Do you remember what Jesus said? You tell that fox that today and tomorrow I will be doing 
and on the third day I will go down to Jerusalem. Right? He, he called him a fox. Now I'm telling you, if, I, if, 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 you, if the names were changed to protect the innocent, and that was said in our day, someone would go, how dehuman, dehumanizing. Don't you know Herod is made in the image of God? So are they really saying that Jesus sinned there? Now, you're not Jesus and neither am I. Right? But, but let's be careful about defining graciousness in such a way that effectively takes some of the powerful rhetoric of the scriptures and, and unplugs it. Right? Because there's, there is something about the clarity of that confrontation that is intended to communicate to the people who are listening. Right? And, and I'm not prepared to like go to the mat on this one completely, but think about Paul before the council and, and the high priest has him slapped. And Paul says, you're going to be slapped, you whitewashed sepulcher. And they go, are you reviling the high priest? And he goes, I'm sorry, I didn't know he was the high priest because the scriptures say you're not supposed to speak evil or curse your rulers. I mean, think of what Paul's saying there. What I said wasn't right only because of the position he has. Not that he was wrong to point out the hypocrisy of the man. Right? I, I just think at times we've turned graciousness into something other than what the Bible would say about it. And we need to think carefully about it so that we're avoiding, if I could, the ditches on both sides. The one side is, is becoming a jerk, right? Being rude and causing needless offense. And on the other side is actually being less bold and faithful, right? We, we actually have trimmed down the truth of God or toned it down in such a way that we're avoiding any confrontation with those who are opposed to it. We, we can do neither of those, right? We can do neither of those. And I think perhaps when you see what he says here about as grace seasoned with salt, which I take to have a certain kind of appeal to it, it's debated what it is, but I think He's, I think he's talking here that our speech should have some kind of flavor to it that, that would be uh, both accurate and appealing because Paul wants to plead with people to accept the truth, persuade people to ex- accept the truth, right? He's, he's not thinking, I'll just bloody their nose and let God work it out, right? He's trying to persuade people in doing that but he does it in an uncompromising way. So Proverbs might have a lot to say for us. Just consider one passage, right? 16, 23, and 24. The heart of the wise instructs his mouth and adds persuasiveness to his lips. Pleasant words are a honeycomb, sweet to the soul and healing to the bones. So so here's what I would encourage us to think about. We should speak thoughtfully, the heart of the wise instructs his mouth, right? Have I thought about what I'm going to say? Because if I'm not being slow to speak, then I'm probably headed toward trouble, right? The first impulse 
of my heart might not be the right impulse. So the heart of the righteous studies how to answer. So the heart of the wise instructs his mouth. Speak thoughtfully, and then it says adds persuasiveness to his lips. So wisdom would actually think we should speak persuasively. What's the best way to communicate this? What's the most effective way to try to help them see the point that I'm talking about or to solve the problem, right? If, if as we sometimes will say, right, if, if all you have is a hammer, every problem is a nail. And sometimes we can be guilty of having only one approach to everything. And we should be saying, what's the most persuasive way? Right? And when possible, we should use pleasant words. Right? And, and I say when possible because I don't want to have Paul calling the Galatians foolish be viewed as outside the bounds of Christian confrontation. Right? Sometimes, sometimes we need to hear the hard right truth. Sometimes we need to speak the hard right truth. But if we make that decision, it's because we've done it thoughtfully and we think persuasively it's time to speak some words that have some whited sepulcher and dead men's bones and snakes and vipers kind of language. We're doing so deliberately, not by catering to our fleshliness in that regard. Then notice the last part of verse 6 so that you will know how to respond to each person. So this, again, as I said, presupposes a certain amount of interaction between believers and lost people. How else would there be questions and answers? So so instead of us reacting to the decay of the culture around us by cocooning, right? By going, I really don't want to be around this person, we actually need to realize that we're not, we're probably not going to have that luxury that much longer. Right? And we might have it more. Hopefully, like if you're on a church staff, you don't have a problem with transgender employees or anything like that. But, but the reality of it is the members of our assemblies are going to face it. Right? They're, they're going to be, uh, working alongside of people who are espousing lifestyles that are radically out of step with God's created order. And those people need Christ. Right? That's, that's what they need. They don't need behavior modification. They need a new heart. And that means someone who knows Christ in the gospel needs to get into proximity to that person so they can speak the truth to them. And if, and if they actually conduct themselves wisely toward outsiders, it's going to elicit sometimes accusations, but also sometimes questions. And whether it's an accusation or a question, God's people need to be prepared to answer in a way that is appropriate, right? You will know how to answer or you should respond to each person. So how we respond should take into consideration the context and the audience and the purpose, right? If you look at Paul in different contexts, he understood 
that he needed to say certain things to certain people. All right, his message never changed. He just understood that he needed to communicate in a way that took into consideration the context within which he was speaking. The audience matters. I mean, it just in part, I mean, Jesus says, don't cast your pearls before swine, right? I mean, at some point, we might have to come to the conclusion that this is a, a and I know this is going to sound bad, but this is a dog and hog kind of conversation. And Jesus says, don't cast your pearls there. Right? So if, you, if you're encountering somebody whose whole point is just to turn and gore you, you're supposed to recognize that. But not everybody, not everybody who's ensnared in sin is in that position. So we shouldn't respond to every person like that. The, the audience does matter. And what's the purpose? I mean, if I just take the two broad ones of Proverbs, right? And do not answer a fool according to his folly. Answer a fool as the folly deserves. What, what's, what's the purpose that I should be engaged in with this person? Do, am I supposed to argue for the truth with them? Or am I needing to show them the folly of their unbelief? Right? What, what should control my speech in that regard? I mean, Jesus left us in the world so that we could bear testimony to him and his saving work, not get into to isolation, right? And the Apostle Paul didn't think we should either, so we need to stand our post as God wants us. We should conduct our lives in a way that's wise and, and recognize that our awareness of lost people looking for opportunities to tell them about Jesus. Our speech should always be the kind of gracious, well-seasoned speech that is appropriate for the answer that we need to give people about Christ, right? It, we need to set the pace on that, guys, right? If we take liberties uh, to, to speak in ways or live in ways that contradict this, we're, we're making a serious mistake because we're, we're going to ask people to do something we're not willing to do. We need to walk the walk. And, and the goal of being a shepherd in our day is not to be edgy and controversial. It's to be faithful. Faithful to Christ, faithful to his word, and faithful in the task of seeking to bring the good news of Christ to those who need it. Let's pray together. Lord, thank you so much that we have your word to guide and direct us. Thank you for the privilege it is to be entrusted with it. Pray that you give us a great conference, that we'd learn a lot, we'd be encouraged, uh, strengthened in the work. And Lord, as we see the darkness uh, starting to envelope us, help us to remember that you are the one who said, let there be light. And you can cause the light to shine in darkness, even as you did in our own hearts, so that we would see your glory in the face of Jesus Christ. Lord, may you do that in and through our churches, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.